The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. I'm Anna Hickey. Associate Editor for Communications, with an episode from the Lawfare Archive for January 13, 2024. This week, it was reported that the United States and the United Kingdom launched airstrikes on Houthi military positions in Yemen, following an increase of attacks by the Iranian-backed militia on commercial vessels in the Red Sea. For today's Archive episode, I picked an episode from September 26, 2015, where Gregory Johnson walks Benjamin Wittes through what led to the conflict engulfing Yemen, why the war shouldn't be viewed as just another Sunni-Shia fight, and explains who the Houthi militants are. I'm Cody Poplin, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, September 26, 2015. That was Gregory Johnson with the State of Play in Yemen. Johnson is a writer-at-large for BuzzFeed News, a doctoral candidate at Princeton University, and an all-things Yemen expert. On this week's Lawfare podcast, he walks Ben through the Byzantine power politics in Sana'a that led to the conflict that has now engulfed Yemen, and he explains why the war shouldn't be viewed as just another Sunni-Shia fight. Yet while the issues that sparked the war are much more local, the longer the conflict goes on, the more likely they are to expand and Johnson outlines the events that led to the Saudi intervention and just whether or not Yemen can be put back together again. It's the Lawfare Podcast, episode number 140. Gregory Johnson answers, what is a Houthi? So let's start with just an overview of the current situation in Yemen. Who's fighting whom and... How would you define the various parties to the conflict? Yeah, that's a that's a really good question. So Yemen, from um, from a distance, looks incredibly chaotic, and I think on the ground, it's um, it's it's just as chaotic as it looks from the outside. So what we have right now is there's a a Saudi-led coalition, which includes the United States, which is giving intelligence, um, help, and advice to Saudi Arabia as well as other countries in the Gulf Cooperation Council, the GCC, like the UAE. And they have troops on the ground, and they're fighting a group in Yemen that has called themselves the Houthis. Um, they're, well, they call themselves Ansar Allah, but uh, most people refer to them as the Houthis after the name of their initial founder. And so these 
this is sort of the main conflict that's taking place, but there are a lot of smaller fights and differing parties around this larger fight. So you have this main fight between Saudi Arabia and its allies against the Houthis on the ground. So what's happened, to sort of take a step back, is in late 2014, the Houthis made a push down out of the mountains, and they're located, their their stronghold is really on the border with Saudi Arabia, came down out of the mountains, essentially took hostage the Yemeni government at the time. This is President Abdul Rabu Mansur Hadi and his cabinet, eventually forcing many of them to resign. They held the president under house arrest for a while. He was able to escape down south to Aden and then make his way um, to Saudi Arabia, where he's been in exile since um, early this year. And so that's really what Saudi Arabia, that's sort of the, the legal fig leaf that Saudi Arabia is using. They say that their their goal is to restore what they call the legitimate government of Yemen, and we can get into um, what exactly that is. But on the sidelines of this, there's also the former president, Ali Abdullah Saleh, who uh, at different times in the past several months has appeared to be allied with the Houthis. He still has a number of individuals within the military who are still loyal to him. Then there's an al-Qaeda group. There's a new ISIS-affiliated group in Yemen. And then, of course, there's also a southern secessionist group. So you have multiple parties all in these sort of shifting alliances that are opposing one another and then trying to oppose the enemy or ally with the enemy of their own enemy. So it is incredibly chaotic. And um, unfortunately, at the moment, most of the reports from human rights organizations that we're seeing um, suggest that the civilian population of, of Yemen is, is bearing a tremendous, is bearing the, the brunt of the conflict. Okay, so let's take each of these groups in turn. Um, uh, I've made notes of the of, of all the factions that you've listed. Let's um, let's just run through them. Sure. What is a Houthi? Right. I mean, who, a... who who are they? And I mean, we we seem to know that they come out of the mountains and that they're uh, Iranian backed in some in some sense. Um, that they're sort of Shia. Um, mm -hmm. what's the, what, what can you tell us about the Houthis? Right. So we'll, we'll do just a, a brief Yemeni history lesson, if you will. So North Yemen, um, basically from sort of, uh, Taz, which is in the center of the country up to what's now the border of Saudi Arabia for about a thousand years was ruled by an imam and the imam was a, a Zaidi, um, which is a, is sort of an offshoot of, of Shia Islam, but Zaydis in traditional um, Islamic theology occupy a very interesting place, and particularly in Yemen, which is really the only place in the world that they ever came to political power, and they sit halfway between sort of Sunni Islam and, and Shia Islam, so they were able, um, particularly in um, the 17th and 18th century, to sort of incorporate a lot of Sunni teaching into their political and, and religious theology. And, but of course they're also Shia, but they're not Shia in the way that we think of, say, Iran being Shia or, or some of the Arabs in Iraq being, being Shia. So they're not, they're not Twelver Shias, if you will. What's happened is in the 1960s there was a revolution that overthrew this Imam. And so the Zaydis, who had been, um, particularly the, the upper classes within the Zaydis, had been at the top of the social pyramid in Yemen. And after the revolution in the 1960s, 
that pyramid was really inverted. So the people who had been ruling the state, who had been sort of the, the ruling class for over a thousand years, they were suddenly at the bottom of the pyramid. And people that they felt were sort of unclean, people who they never would have married their daughters to, for instance, were now ruling the state primarily as, as military rulers. And so what's happened since 1960 and then particularly since 2000, 2001, 2002 is that the Zaydis have felt that they were on the verge of extinction. That is, they felt that their young men were being drawn away. They saw many missionaries coming over the border from Saudi Arabia, recruiting their young men into a more sort of militaristic Sunnism, um, a generic Sunnism um, aligned with the, the Wahhabi faith there in Saudi Arabia. And so eventually they were back so far into the corner that they lashed out. And this happened in 2004, which became the first of what we know as the Houthi Wars. And the reason that they're known as the Houthis is because their initial leader is a guy by the name of Hussein Badreddin al-Houthi. And he was actually killed in September of 2004, which ended that first war between the central government in Sana'a, Ali Abdullah Saleh, who was president at the time, and the Houthis up in the northern mountains. Um, at the time, the Yemeni government talked about these mountains as being like Yemen's Tora Bora, that is, very rugged geography. The Yemeni government was using a lot of airstrikes, but it just couldn't get these gorillas out of the mountains. There were various peace attempts over the years, but they never really held. And so from 2004 to 2010, there were six separate Houthi wars against the central government in Sana'a, the government continually trying to sort of bring them to heel and never really being able to do that. And then in 2011, of course, we have the Arab Spring, the uprisings. Ali Abdullah Saleh is eventually forced to step down. But what happens in Yemen is a little bit different than what happened in some of the other countries. So, for instance, in Egypt, Mubarak goes to prison in, in Tunisia. Ben Ali goes into exile. In Libya, Gaddafi is killed. Well, in Yemen, Ali Abdullah Saleh just goes home. Basically, he cuts a deal that in exchange for stepping down from the presidency, he'll be granted immunity and he'll be allowed to go home. In retrospect, this was a, um, a very big mistake as he's continued to play a spoiler since. And as the in 2012, as the Yemeni government, this, this sort of weak, fractured government, was fighting off a number of different threats, including al-Qaeda, including secessionists, trying to maneuver all of this. What happened in the north is that the Houthis were able to consolidate their, their hold on power and slowly begin moving down. And that process really sort of culminated in 2014, in September of 2014, when they moved into the capital of, of Sana'a and started um, taking over different places and has eventually sort of taken over what's left of, of the central government there in Yemen. And so why are the Saudis and the Emiratis, uh, the second group you listed, um, mm -hmm. a particular foe of the Houthis? Is this just a Shia-Sunni thing, or is there some... Um, is there some more particular reason why this coalition considered the Houthi uh, taking of Sana'a to be such a provocation that it warranted intervention? Yeah, that's that's a really good question. And I think there are actually a number of different explanations that, when taken together, sort of explain um, Saudi Arabia's stance on this. So 
One is that in the sixth Houthi war, the one that took place in 2009 into 2010, Saudi Arabia actually became involved in that war on the side of Ali Abdullah Saleh and the U.S. and the Yemeni central government in that Saudi was flying airstrikes against the Houthis, um, and the Houthis pushed back. Saudi Arabia was shelling the Houthis from Saudi Arabia. The Houthis actually made incursions into Saudi Arabia and actually embarrassed some of the Saudi troops. They were able to defeat some of the Saudi troops, and this, of course, was very damaging for Saudi Arabia's own image of itself. That is, Saudi Arabia has poured a lot of money into its military over the years, and here you have what in sort of the popular press is described as these barefoot tribesmen coming over the border from Yemen and overrunning your troops, and then there are YouTube videos of Houthi fighters driving around in Saudi trucks showing off the booty that they had managed to take. So there's that, that Saudi Arabia has um, this history with the Houthis and was badly embarrassed in 2009-2010. There's also the, the Sunni-Shia war or the rivalry that's sort of taking place across the Middle East. And I think it's interesting to get into some of the history. The Houthis are often called Iranian-backed. Um, I'm not really ever quite sure what it is that this means, but in 2004, when the war, the Houthi wars, were just starting in Yemen, Ali Abdullah Saleh in Sana'a was in a very interesting position in that since September 11th, he had received a lot of money um, from the U.S. to fight al-Qaeda. But by 2004, 2005, 2006, it looked as if al-Qaeda had largely been defeated in Yemen. And the U.S. in 2005 actually cut a lot of its funding to, to Sana'a, basically telling Ali Abdullah Saleh, or the message that he took away from it anyways, was that, look, in the absence of al-Qaeda, Yemen is just one more, one more poor country in a world of beggars. So what Ali Abdullah Saleh tried to do internationally in the same way that he's often done domestically is he tried to tie Yemen's domestic problems to larger international issues. And so when Saudi Arabia and the U.S. were very worried about Iran in 2004, 2005, 2006, he said, look, you guys have a Shia problem. I have my own Shia problem here in the north. And in fact, the Houthis are actually taking support from the Iranian government. And at that point, I don't think there was a whole lot of evidence to um, to suggest that the Houthis were actually receiving much in the way of support. But over the years, this has become a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy in that it, the Saudis and the U.S. and the Yemeni central government have continued to sort of bang this drum, and they've, they've pushed the Houthis so far into a corner that the Houthis have essentially opened themselves up to taking now um, money, I think, to taking training, to taking weapons and different things from the Iranian government. And so what you're seeing is that this is a almost a domestic issue that has had sort of a regional and an international in the Sunni-Shia rivalry grafted onto, onto this domestic, domestic issue there in Yemen. But in your view, it's, a, it's a, a graft, not an organic feature of the conflict. Yeah, I mean, what you have in Yemen a lot of times, um, this was true in the 1960s during the Civil War in which Saudi Arabia was also involved, um, as well as the, the UK was extensively involved in that war, is you have these different Yemeni groups, these, these local actors that essentially open their hands up 
and allow whatever international actors to give them aid and give them support, but then they'll just go ahead and do whatever it is that they were going to do anyway. So I don't think that Tehran has any sort of command and control over the Houthis at this point. The Houthis are going to do whatever they view to be in their best interest, but they're perfectly willing to open their hand and um, take support from, from Iran. But this is very much, in my view, it's very much a domestic issue that's taking place in Yemen that has a regional aspect that's been grafted onto it that has sort of exacerbated and, and complicated the conflict in many ways. So next we have two former presidents, Hadi and right. Saleh. Who well, Hadi's still the internationally recognized president. So including by would, the United States. Including by the United States, which no longer has an embassy in Yemen. Okay, so walk us through what role each of them is playing. If I remember right, Hadi was Saleh's vice president. That's true. And so, Yes, Salah is now sort of allied with the Houthis, right? Who he fought in six wars from 2004 to 2010, yes. It's, uh, okay, so is, walk, us, walk us through this. This is where it gets really Byzantine. Yes, this is, this is Yemeni politics. So in 1990, oh, well, let's, in 1990, North and South Yemen unified. And this was at the end of the Cold War, the South, South Yemen had been almost entirely dependent upon the Soviet Union. Um, they realized that that was no longer workable. So North and South Yemen unify in 1990, much like East and West Germany. Um, and what happens is in 1994, the South realizes that this unification is not really a marriage of equals, that the North, under Ali Abdullah Saleh, the president, is really sort of taking over. And so the South attempts to secede. Now, the vice president at the time was a Southerner, and he led the secession effort. So Saleh, what he did is he brought up this other Southerner, a man named, by the name of Abd Rabu Mansur Hadi, who allied with the Northerners against the Southern secession attempt. So he made Hadi in 1994 during the Civil War his vice president. And Hadi, for the next 18 years, was basically known as, as the statue in Yemen. I mean, he was at official events. But no one ever, no one really knew a whole lot about him. He wasn't particularly powerful. Um, a small, portly, bald man, didn't speak a lot to the press, didn't appear very comfortable. But he was the vice president and he was from the south and that was an important thing in Yemen because that showed national unity. Now fast forward to the Arab uprisings in 2011-2012. Saleh steps down, but Yemen is so fractured and fragmented by this point that there's no one who can really hold the country together. So what happens is that the United States and Saudi Arabia, who are really the two drivers of this process, work out this deal by which President Saleh, Ali Abdullah Saleh, will step down and his vice president, Hadi, will come to power. And so Hadi was confirmed in February of 2012 in what the, what the U.S. And, and Saudi Arabia and the U.N. called a called a vote, but it was really a referendum with, with no option for no. That is, Hadi was the only candidate, and if you voted no, then, then, your, um, then your ballot was, was invalid. And so Hadi came to power for what was supposed to be a two-year transitionary period. But Hadi came to power, and he really had a very, you know, he, he just didn't have a good hand. Here was a guy 
who had very little domestic support. Ali Abdullah Saleh was a, a master of what in Yemen is often referred to as dancing on the heads of snakes, of playing different rivals off against one another so that no one is strong enough to sort of take on the man in the middle. And so when Hadi came to power, he had no domestic support. He tried to use very strong international support from the U.S. and the U.N. to offset that, but it just never really worked. And one of the reasons that it didn't work was because the Houthis were advancing up in the north, and Ali Abdullah Saleh, who still had a number of allies, individuals, commanders who were loyal to him personally in the military, was undermining him there in Sanaa. And so Hadi went through the first transition period in 2012 to 2014. Nothing really happened. His transitionary period was extended another two years in 2014, but shortly after it was extended was when the Houthis really uh, moved into Sana'a, um, put Hadi under house arrest, and then he eventually escaped and made his way into exile. So now you have the internationally recognized president of Yemen who's living in exile, while the former president of Yemen, who was overthrown during the uprising, is at home in Sanaa. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am, but Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. And Salah's role has been completely mystifying to me. So here's he is almost killed in the in the uprising, burned, mm-hmm. goes gets treatment in Saudi Arabia. And the U.S. Um, and the U.S.? I, I, I've forgotten yeah, that. Yeah, he, he came to New York. Um, miraculously recovers and then returns in alliance or in quasi-alliance with the Houthis. So what's his evolution that produces this? And, and what has been the reaction to this in Saudi Arabia? Yeah, well, I think both the Saudis and and the U.S. government are incredibly frustrated by Ali Abdullah Saleh. And if they could, you know, sort of pinpoint the one thing that went wrong in their plan in in Yemen, it was letting Ali Abdullah Saleh stay in the country after he stepped down in in 2012. Because you're absolutely right. He survived a bombing at the mosque in 2011 came back, um, he sort of stepped out of this bill and a number of times eventually agreed to it. But his evolution, um, he was not particularly happy about obviously being forced out of power. I think he saw what was happening in Egypt, he saw what was happening in Libya, saw what was happening in Tunisia and even in Syria at that point. And he, you know, he played it much better than some of the other Arab dictators in that 
he was able to get um, the best deal from, for himself, a deal that allowed him to, to stay in, in Yemen with immunity. And once that was granted, there was very little incentive for him to continue to play the game. His allies were being pushed out of power. The people that he had relied on, members of his tribe, his family, his sort of inner circle that he had brought up with him. And one of the things that's important to remember here is Ali Abdullah Saleh came to power in Yemen in 1978, but he came to power on the heels of two brutal assassinations. So his two predecessors as presidents of North Yemen had both been assassinated. And so when he came into power, he was very careful about surrounding himself only with people that he trusted. And eventually he put himself in the system so well and through what I call the politics of marriage. That is, he used marriage himself, the marriage of his sons, his nephews, uh, marrying his daughters into prominent families within Yemen, that he had integrated himself almost like this massive spider web of connections within Yemen that you couldn't just pull him out of Yemen, that if you did, sort of the whole system would come crumbling down because he had his fingers in every pie or his family members in every other family. And so now he's many of the people that I've spoken to, and I think this makes sense, feel that he's both acting out of the sense of trying to preserve the that family and the relatives and the people that he has managed to put in positions of power that he feels as though he's in this position almost as a godfather, that he has to take care of everyone else. And in doing so, he's able to, of course, stick it to the Saudis, stick it to the United States, and stick it to his old vice president, Hadi, who all agreed and conspired to force him out of power. So now let's uh, let's turn to – you mentioned that there's an al-Qaeda faction, AQAP. Mm-hmm. There's also right. an ISIS faction, yeah. which is different. Mm-hmm. Um, what's – where are they and what are they up to both in relation to this Houthi war but also in relation to each other? Yeah, and this is where it gets, I mean, it'd be comical if it wasn't so sad in that the Houthis and Al-Qaeda hate each other and they fight um, against one another. Al-Qaeda has carried out suicide bombings against the Houthis previously. Um, The Houthis hate Al-Qaeda and fight them. And, of course, the U.S. and Saudi Arabia are fighting now both the Houthis and al-Qaeda. So they're, they're fighting both of these groups that are sort of sworn enemies there in Yemen. And one of the other things happening is that Yemen has undergone massive, massive airstrikes from the Saudi-led coalition, um, even before they put troops on the ground. I mean, this is a war hasn't been particularly well covered in Western media, but this is a war that has been going on now for several months. And there's almost nothing left of Yemen's military infrastructure at this point. So that, you know, army bases have been bombed, military um, weapons depots have been bombed. All of these have been targeted by the Saudi-led coalition um, under the under the explanation that many members of the military continued to be loyal to President Saleh, who was allied with the Houthis, who Saudi was fighting. So Saudi had to attack these so that the Houthis wouldn't get their hands on some of these weapons. And that has sort of its own logic, but it's a very short-term logic in the sense that now, when, whenever this war does come to an end, there's not going to be much left of the Yemeni military to fight groups like al-Qaeda and ISIS. And, of course, the Yemeni military was never particularly good to begin with, 
but it has received a lot of U.S. equipment and U.S. training over the years. And so what's happened as the Yemeni military has sort of been being bombed in their bases, this has given al-Qaeda and ISIS a, a much bigger and a much freer hand than anything that they experienced previously. So al-Qaeda has essentially taken over al-Muqalla, which is this port city um, out on, on Yemen's southern coast, out in the east of the country in the province of, of Hadramut. And that has both sort of good and, and challenging things uh, from the perspective of al-Qaeda, good in the sense that they've always desired to control territory and to sort of run that territory, um, but bad in the sense from a group like al-Qaeda's perspective in that once you hold territory, essentially you have a return address. And so this allows, of course, the U.S., which has continued to fly um, drone flights, has continued to have drone strikes throughout all of the throughout the fighting over the past several months. The U.S. has managed, and in fact, I think, has been fairly successful in killing several key Al Qaeda leaders. In fact, the head of the organization, a man by the name of Nasser al Waheshi, was killed earlier this year in in a U.S. drone strike. But what's happening is that ISIS is sort of a, a more radical version of al-Qaeda. ISIS has also had a freer hand. And so um, there's apparently a Saudi who was once a part of al-Qaeda who's broken away, who's helped to recruit people for ISIS in Yemen. And whereas at least for al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, there seem to be rules of engagement that the organization had in Yemen. That is, they, they tried not to attack sort of Muslim civilians, and when they did, there was a, um, a, a very sort of egregious breach of this in, in December of 2013. They were quick to apologize. What's happening now is that ISIS is carrying out these bombings that are taking place in Sana'a against what it calls Shia mosques. And so what we're seeing in Yemen, and it's, it's very sad to witness, but we are witnessing it, is, I think, a, a real radicalization of the religious landscape. That is, what happened in Iraq, this Shia-Sunni war is now starting to happen in Yemen. I think we're seeing the very beginnings of that. And once that genie is let out of the bottle, as we've seen in Iraq, it's very, very difficult to put it back in. And in fact, I don't think anyone in Yemen right now is in a position to sort of hold the country or bring the country back together. And Yemen is a is a broken country. And in fact, I don't even think that it's it's accurate to talk about it as one country anymore. It seems to be um, a half dozen or so. So finally, we have, you've mentioned them a few times here, the Southern Secessionists. Mm-hmm. The South was its own country until 1990. What has prompted the re-secessionist movement and how active is it? Right. So this is a, this is a group that, that was really sort of reactivated in 2007, I think, is a, a really a turning point for them. And it happened because many of these were southern military leaders who had fought and then had been decommissioned because President Saleh, who was president at the time, no longer trusted them. And in 2007, many of them lost their pensions. And so this started as sort of um, a lot of protests, a popular protests in the South, and it's continued to, to grow. I mean, the sad truth of things, is that Yemen is a very poor country. The central government has a very poor reputation and a very poor record, and it's not able to provide services to a lot of these different places. In fact, some of the Houthis' initial grievances was that the central government 
wasn't paving roads up in the north, that it wasn't delivering on the electrical stations that it promised, that it wasn't delivering on hospitals. And you see many of these same grievances, many of these same things being said in the south. Of course, the difference in both camps is that what happens is they channel these grievances into sort of historically valid narratives. That is, the South says, all our problems are because the government in Sana'a is northern dominated. The Zaydis, the Houthis up in the north say, all our problems are because the government in Sana'a is controlled by non-Zaydis or by, by non-Zaydis, by people who aren't at the top of the Zaydi social caste. And so now what you have is a very fragmented southern secessionist movement. So there's not a particularly unified organization. There's a lot of leaders who are, who are in exile, who have been in exile. There are a lot of younger leaders on the ground. And many of them are just angry and frustrated, and they just want to be free of Sanaa and free of the north. But very few of them have anything in the, in the way of a strategic or a feasible long-term plan for an independent country. Um, so what I think what we're seeing in Yemen, or at least the way that I attend, when I see the news, when I talk to friends, and when I talk to different people there, I think what we're seeing is almost like one of these large glaciers that's slowly starting to, to fracture and fragment, and different parts of, of what we've always known as Yemen are starting to drift um, further and further away from other parts, essentially drift out of each other's orbit. So when you look at this situation, in most most times when there's a war, you kind of look at the situation and you you sort of figure out what parties you're sympathetic to, what parties mm-hmm. you think are sort of the villains, what parties you're, uh, you know, and sometimes you can't do that because right. it's just too much of a mess. When you look at this situation, is there a particular group or faction that you say this represents something reasonably attractive, this warrants, you know, international support, or do you just look at it and say uh, it's a mess of conflicting interests and there's sort of there's there's no horse to bet on here, at least as a as a sort of normative matter. Yeah, there there are no innocent parties in Yemen. I, I think all of the groups have committed human rights abuses. I, I think if investigators were to really dig down, all of the groups would be guilty of, of war crimes. I, I think Saudi Arabia has been incredibly irresponsible in the way that it's conducted this war. And Saudi Arabia and the UAE and other countries that are sending troops to Yemen, it's very easy to send troops, but as, as the U.S. has found in Iraq, it's very, very difficult to pull them out. Um, I think the U.S. has made made a fundamental mistake in backing Saudi Arabia because essentially what the U.S. has done is thrown its reputation behind the kingdom of Saudi Arabia and in a way that the U.S. now has ownership, at least partial ownership, of a war that it doesn't control. And so Saudi Arabia, Saudi bombings have killed um, several civilians that I think have been well documented by the UN as well as other aid organizations there in Yemen. The Houthis have committed human rights abuses, of course, Al Qaeda and ISIS. Um, you know, the, these are these are terrorist groups that we're talking about, and there's really um, there's really no horse to back for the United States. But this is a this is a war. At least it seems to me, not a lot of people are paying attention to at the moment because it's still stays largely within Yemen, but I don't think this is a war that can ultimately be contained 
just within Yemen. And if that happens, then I think this is going to present a, a much, much bigger catastrophe than, than sort of the, the one on the human rights um, disaster that we're seeing now. So what should U.S. policy be to bring this to bring this full circle? You know, there was a presumably a, a big mistake in in um, in in the way the the Sala resignation was handled. There was a subsequent mistake in backing the Saudi intervention. Right. If you could wave your magic wand, and the Obama administration would, you know do whatever policy you think makes sense. What does it look like now? Well, I tried that magic wand a while ago. It didn't didn't quite work. Um, as well as did several other people who um, had studied Yemen and had spent a lot of time there. And I think to a, to a person, the um, the policymakers in Washington um, were were simply not interested in in what it is that um, people who'd spent a lot of time in Yemen had to suggest. And what we're seeing here is, yes, the U.S. made, I think, a catastrophic mistake in allowing President Saleh to, to stay in conducting that that deal. I think there was momentum, and then I think there was a window of opportunity that would have allowed for a clean break from his regime um, that just didn't happen, and that was a mistake. And then I think the U.S. made a mistake in sort of backing the Saudis. There's a lot of other sort of regional politics that go, go along with that decision, but I think what we're seeing is that each mistake that the U.S. makes, it puts itself farther and farther into a corner and that it has fewer and fewer good options. But I think the one option that the U.S. still has, I'm not sure um, how much leverage it continues to have, but if it could somehow, and I know people in Washington say that the U.S. is trying to do this, but obviously it's not being very successful, but I think the U.S. still has a lot of diplomatic weight that it can bring to bear on Saudi Arabia and get Saudi Arabia to step back and to pull troops out. Now, Saudi will, of course, Saudi Arabia is in a very difficult position. For a long time, they were just bombing the Houthis, but that didn't really seem to be working. So at that point, they had a decision to make. Either you sort of double down on a on a on an approach that hasn't been working, that is airstrikes against the Houthis, you stop altogether and allow the Houthis to declare victory, and, and you will have lost, which for a new king in sort of his first foreign policy adventure is, is um, I think, very unpalatable. Or you double down, or you sort of go to the next um, double down, essentially, and, and send ground troops in, and that appears to be what Saudi Arabia has done. So instead of lessening the conflict, the conflict has actually gotten worse. And I think the United States is really the only country that, if it really brought all of its diplomatic power to bear, could force Saudi Arabia for its own good, as well as for the good of the United States and as well as for the good of Yemen, um, to step back from this. But I I don't see that um, that happening, but I think that's the that's the least bad option that I see at the moment. When was the last time you were in Yemen? Uh, the last time I was in Yemen was in 2014, uh, and I uh, managed to escape a kidnapping attempt at that point, and I have not not been back since. I tried to go earlier this year um, to get in on a um, on a flight, but the Saudis were were monitoring the the manifest so closely um, that no one besides they weren't allowing anybody besides human rights 
um, workers to go in. There have been some journalists, um, Matthew Aiken, um, I think is a great example, who was able to sort of smuggle himself in um, going over from Djibouti and then making his way down the coast and, and eventually to, to Sanaa. And he wrote a, a really good dispatch on, on Yemen for Rolling Stone magazine. What were the circumstances of, of, of the attempted kidnapping? Uh, it was, it's, I think it's really just a testament to the breakdown of law and order within Yemen. It, it appeared to be a target of opportunity. A, a Yemeni friend and I were, were walking into a restaurant on a Saturday morning and a, a guy who, um, uh, who was dressed in a military uniform, um, we sort of bumped into him, and then when we came out of the restaurant 15 minutes later, he had, had organized with another friend an attempt to um, to attempt to kidnap us and push us into a car, something very similar to what happened to Luke Summers, um, the American photographer, who was kidnapped actually just a couple of blocks from where the attempt on me took place. And um, Luke, of course, was, was tragically killed um, last December in, in, a, in a SEAL raid. Um, when the, the U.S. went in and tried to get him, he was eventually sold to Al-Qaeda. There was a similar attempt um, a few weeks after the attempt on me that took place on a CIA and a JSOC operative um, there in, in Yemen. Um, for those who are interested, I wrote about the, the kidnapping attempt on, uh, on, on BuzzFeed and sort of a narrative of what happened. But it's really you just, you know, law and order and the the bonds that hold society together in Yemen have broken down to the degree that people who who look different, particularly um, Westerners who are obviously Western, um, are essentially just price tags walking around. And um, I think you see very few Westerners in Yemen. Certainly, I didn't see a whole lot when I was there, and I think there are even fewer now. Greg, glad you escaped the kidnapping, and thank you very much for joining us. Absolutely. Thanks so much, Ben. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. And as always, please spread the word and promote the Lawfare Podcast on your social networks, Twitter, Facebook, email, and in any other way you can. Thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.